Hey kids, welcome back to On Stage, Off Stage. I'm your host, George Sapio, and this month, our guest is Deirdre Kinahan. Deirdre is an Irish playwright. I found an interview with her on HowlRound, where she spoke about many subjects, including, oh, women in Irish theater, self-producing, her own early works, writing technique, and the dynamics of economical language. She also spoke about making audiences think, about the politics of life that characters carry with them, and how playwrights underscore large issues through singular humanities. So we started off with a very political topic. Women playwrights who have issues with the gender category. Talk about that a little bit, because you mentioned something about, in, in the interview I saw on HowlRound, somebody was talking about not wanting to be a female playwright. That's right. How is yeah. that possible? I mean, unless you're male, of course. Yeah, well, I, I think some people just struggle with labels, you know. So, I mean, personally, I have no problem with being labeled a female playwright because I am both female and a playwright. So it doesn't bother me at all. And I'm very much in support of kind of, you know, discriminate, positive discrimination, you know, discriminating in a positive sense in, ter in term, you know, when you're trying to highlight diversity or highlight women or whatever. So, I personally have no problem with festivals of women's theatre or series of women's plays or being considered a female playwright. But I know that some people find it that it kind of diminishes them, that it doesn't look at the work itself, but it looks at it as the work of a female playwright and automatically kind of boxes it off. Yeah, boxing it off is, is, is one thing, but um, what about having an opportunity to be considered for who you are not just for what you do, because like many professions, this has been male-dominated, white male-dominated um, since time immemorial. So seeing it as an opportunity, because you happen to be a female or a female of color or, you know, however, um, taking the opportunity and running with that. Well, I mean, who you are is obviously a huge part of your artistic practice. I mean, everything you write, uh, you know, it is, you know, wrapped up in, embellished by and spinning out of who you are and how you perceive the world and how you come in contact with the world, you know, and how you make an effort to understand the world. So I think you know, who you are is always not going to only influence, you know, the, the work that you produce, but, but you know, your thinking and your positioning on various um, topics and political concerns. I think it's kind of really interesting in that you're talking about a very interesting time in terms of Irish, you know, social development, artistic development, and uh, who we are and where we are as a country, in that we just had a big referendum over the weekend. Yeah, I heard about that. But, uh, yeah, to provide for uh, abortion rights for women in this country. And um, it was like a real test case because Ireland has constantly been spinning towards a far more progressive, liberal outlook and a more compassionate society, really since we joined the EU in the early 1970s. And there's been a series of milestones. Like just two years ago, we were one of the first countries to vote to legalise same-sex marriage and you know, now this is a huge step forward. And I think what yeah. is kind of really invigorating about the same-sex marriage and this referendum for kind of women's civil liberties and, and the right to abortion and control your own fertility is that artists have been very much involved, if not at the helm, of these movements. And that makes art feel very politically relevant again. And I suppose 
I'm somebody who, you know, I've been writing for 20 years um, and I write very much out of the ether, out of, you know, what's going on around me, what concerns people around me, what are people battling against, what are people celebrating, you know, what are what traumas are people finding themselves in the midst of. And while I write very much about ordinary people, I think the plays are always deeply politi- political because just putting your head above the parapet and, uh, and kind of excavating or opening something up is a political act. And whilst I really try not to be dogmatic or dictatorial uh, in any of my plays, I like to think of them as big questions because I think that's the power of theatre. Theatre will bring us into worlds and lives and places we never would have walked into in our own experience. And it allows us to get in and under and try and understand something about the world around us and the people around us and why they behave as they do. So I just feel that art and politics really intertwine, whether you like it or not. <laughs> it's, it's, it seems that theatre is uh, possibly the one media, medium, sorry, um, in which we especially go after political subjects. Uh, it, Movies touch on it every once in a while, but they're they're usually art house movies or they're not mainstream movies. Um, but theater seems to be, at least within, I guess, the past 20 years, maybe 25, seems to be coming forward as the vehicle for underrepresented people, for examining uh, life's and society's problems. Um, why do you think that is? Yeah. Uh, well, I think, you know, when you say theatre gives a voice to underrepresented people, I, I think that's beautiful and that's marvellous and that's absolutely what it does. Because I think theatre and theatre makers and writers, you know, will always, you know, kind of veer toward the dark corners and try and shine a different light on them. It kind of can't help it I think if you're an artist if you're you know kind of drawn to that kind of expression you're always searching you're always curious you're always asking the questions and like we live in such a complex world you know where there are so many layers of being and layers of experience even within one community one village one household that theatre is a bit like fine art it's very different from film that way in that a whole play a two-hour play can be carved out of one moment in somebody's existence and can be just kind of fine lighting into you know one jolting experience that shapes somebody forever so it's quite different than film and I think it just um particularly in the 21st century kind of contemporary writers just tend to veer towards those edges and those corners because that's obviously where a lot of the drama is, a lot of conflict is. And, um, you know, it's an attempt to really kind of wrap itself around and understand the entire ecology of humanity, you know, and I think that's what kind of pushes us in that way. And, of course, it's very tricky, you know, the word political theatre would make a lot of us run for the hills. Do you yeah, know what I mean? I don't, <laughs> yeah. I don't want to get involved. I don't want to think that hard. 
Yeah, exactly. But you see, that's the joy of story. I mean, if you present somebody, you know, you present Malcolm, you know, who's just found himself in a direct provision centre in Ireland and you start to talk about Malcolm's day and his routine and maybe the woman that Malcolm has fallen in love with that he never gets to speak to that also works in the direct, you know, that works in the direct provision centre. And then through that story, you tell the story of how Malcolm found himself, you know, on a boat escaping from Syria through Italy into Europe. You, you, you suddenly find yourself dealing with a huge political international issue, but you're doing it through Malcolm. Do you know what I mean? So it's like you can tell the big stories in the small rooms. You know, that's that's the beauty of story because people would immediately connect with Malcolm, if he, you know, you know, yeah. maybe he's struggling with his, you know, with his teacup or it reminds him of his granny and then it brings him to a story of what life was like. They will immediately connect to those very simple human relationships. And then through that connection, they find themselves understanding a huge international crisis of, you know, kind of emigration or, exactly. you know, fear. you know yeah. what I mean? So I think oh, I, I totally yeah. do so well. Yeah, I, I totally understand this. You, you have a quote that says, theater is deeply political for me. It's got to do something to you. It's got to make you think. Now, as you said before, a lot of people would run in the other direction because they don't want to be weighed down with, you know, all these heavily dramatic things because gosh knows what their life is like. Yeah, right? yeah. But if you throw a political play at somebody, all right, and you push issues, you can scare people away. But if you, as you just said, if you put all that into a character that they can relate to, that they can understand, that they can sympathize with, that's the way in. That's the way in. And then you can take them anywhere. And the thinking is done outside the theatre. I love plays mm -hmm. where those characters kind of get into your heart and into your soul and they just kind of walk around with you and they make you keep thinking about the quandary that they lay bare before you. And also you can see yourself in these characters and you can see how you respond to various situations. So I think it's, and I think it's, I think comedy is a great, um, a great tool in that. I mean, I write uh, a lot of comedy, but it, but it's not kind of bum bum. Here's a joke. It, it's much more observational comedy. The humanity of people, you know, when they're thrust into very stressful situations and say the wrong things and are wrong footed, and oh, yeah. that comedy, everybody relates to it. And then you get people to relax. And when people relax and feel, okay, I know this sitting room, you know, I know the dynamics of this table, uh, you know, and you're laughing heartily at it. Well, then you, you've opened up their, their, their hearts, they're at ease, mm -hmm. and then you can start to assail them. Do you know what I mean? With Absolutely. kind of more powerful truths. Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it's an issue I've come across many, many, many times. Like I said, you know, it's, it's, you walk into a play and it's, Somebody starts to throw issues at you and you just turn off because you're being lectured. But give me somebody that I care about. Give me Absolutely. somebody I can I can I can look at and say, Oh my gosh, what's happening to you? No, do this, no, do and you can take people anywhere. That's it. And, and I suppose I, I have a new play that I, I'm writing at the moment uh, called Ratmines Road. And um, it's opening in October in uh, the Abbey Theatre here. It's a co-production with the Abbey and Fishamble, who are a fabulous new writing theatre company in Ireland. Nice. But in it, 
I, I'm kind of looking at two things. I'm looking at this notion that people feel the need or the urge to kind of uh, expose or attack or unearth uh, very traumatic things that happened to them in the past, you know? I mean, an obvious uh, uh, kind of correlation would be, say, like the Har- Harvey Weinstein issues that, you know, that you're dealing with now, the whole right, Me Too right, movement. Right. And a lot of those rapes or sexual assaults happened many, many years ago. So I was interested. I started writing this play about three or four years ago because there were a couple of... Uh, cases, not necessarily, you know, a a part of the Me Too movement, but, you know, Jimmy Savile, a very well-known TV personality in Britain who had, uh, you know, assaulted many, many children, and they were all coming forward 30, 40 years later. So I wanted to explore that notion of, you know, unearthing, you know, what is it, what's the compulsion, and then also explore society's response to that how do we respond to uh, accusations of sexual assault so what I did was I put four people kind of at a dinner table and one recognizes a member of the party who she hasn't met before as a, a man who had assaulted her 20 years ago and she she outs it and the whole play revolves around everybody's response to that accusation and I it was a hard write, but a really, really um, enjoyable write in many ways. Because what I was trying to do was get into the heart of each one of those characters who are deeply affected by this moment in a very different way and have the audience swing in sympathy, you know. Oh my God, I can understand where she's coming from. She's absolutely right. Oh yeah. no, that's yeah. not a good idea. But or can you be sympathetic to an abuser? That. Yeah, even, even, you know, there's sympathy and there's empathy, you know, getting in and looking at denial because the abuser is in complete denial. So it wasn't me. I didn't do it. I wasn't there. And then we need to shift him to the place where he admits that it happened. And then we need to shift him to the place where we see the narrative he has built up over the years, because that is something that fascinates me, particularly in the world today. narrative, how people control narrative, how people retell stories and convince themselves of particular truths that are not necessarily truths at all. It's that world of denial, you know, and you're certainly swimming around in that quite a bit in the United States at the moment. It's just kind of like, (laughs) it's like, oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. We won't go there. Oh, that'd be a much longer show. Yeah. Um, Okay, uh, let me switch over to something similar. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna go all the way all the way back here for you. Um, talk about I guess it's your first play. Is it Bay Carna? Did I pronounce that correctly? Bay Carna, you did. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Okay. Um, and that was your first play. As that a, was okay. It's about older prostitutes and kicking off of what we were just you know just talking about. My my questions are why did you choose that? Uh, what was your research and for somebody who had not written a play before, how did you go about that? Um, turning it into, you know, a, a dramatic structure. Sure. Uh, yeah, that, that, that's, um, that was uh, quite a start for me in theater really. I mean, what it was, was I was about 27, 26, 27, and I had traveled for a couple of years and come back to Ireland and decided that I wanted to, to, you know, work in theater. And, um, so I was working as an actress, 
uh, a job an actress, you know, just really kind of kicking off very late. You know, a lot of my contemporaries were either established or had given it up. And um, I was also just to make money. I was working with a group called Ruhama Women's Project. And Ruhama Women's Project was set up by this fabulous woman called Fiona Pryle, who was a friend of my ma's, who was a very alternative, controversial, you know, nun. And she was working with older women in Dublin uh, who had been working as prostitutes all their lives. And prostitution at that time, we're talking in the late 90s, early noughties, was a very outdoor um, profession. The women were on Fitzwilliam Square and Ben Burb Street. It was very outdoor. And a lot of them were, you know, in their 50s and 60s. And Fiona had this idea of uh, helping them retrain uh, so that they could work as something else. And um, it started off like it's gas. It started off in this tiny little shop on Pier Street in Dublin city centre. And it was Fiona and one or two other, um, uh, you know, kind of professionals and the women. And they kind of painted it themselves, hung the wallpaper themselves. And now it's become this huge internationally uh, celebrated organisation that, that, you know, is a big kind of lobbying force in Europe around prostitution and that. But it, it started off so tiny. And, and Fiona brought me in. Uh, to kind of teach the women literacy because a lot of them had left school at 10 or 11 and I got to know these women really well and at the same time I was working away trying to make it as an actress so these women would come to my plays and they got really interested in theatre and got interested in what we were doing and they were fabulous women you know and from a completely different world to mine experiences you or I couldn't even imagine you know such mm, violence yeah. and vulnerability and really at the cold face of, of, of Dublin God knows what, yeah. yeah so anyway they, they, they kind of came up with the idea that they wanted me to do drama classes with them so I started doing drama on a Saturday afternoon you know with about five or six and then they were saying you know we'd love to write a play about our lives because there's so much misinformation out there about prostitutes and who we are and what we are and there was kind of a big turf war going on at the time because there was a lot of women being trafficked into prostitution coming over in the early noughties and there was a lot of drug drug addicted women going into prostitution and it was moving underground and uh, there were a lot of massage parlors so it was a very it was a very kind of political hot potato and these women were kind of relics of a different time and yet they were very vocal and it you know you, you were really kind of in the crossfire of something so i I suggested that I would get a writer involved and a director involved and that maybe as an actress I would work on it. But they were adamant. They felt they knew me. They'd been working with me over two years. They'd seen me in plays. They knew the people I worked with because I had a tiny fledgling um, theatre company at that time called Tall Tales. Right. I want to get to that a little later, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So so the women asked me to, you know, would I do it? Would I be the writer? Did they know you hadn't? Had you written anything before and did they know it or hadn't you written anything? And No, I absolutely hadn't written anything before that. I had never even kind of conceived, you know, um, myself as a writer or imagined writing. My passion w was very much acting. So, um, but it was an extraordinary experience writing those monologues. And I worked with a wonderful 
director called Jerry Morgan, who used to be involved in the Irish City Arts Theatre. And he did a beautiful job of kind of melding them together. And and the, the, they didn't run um, kind of in a linear fashion. They melted in and out of each other. And we dressed them in these kind of grey institutional uniforms. So it kind of became like every story and every woman. And uh, and there was a lot of um, comedy and joy in the stories as well as a lot of sadness, you know. But it was a great uh, introduction for me because um, Ruhama kind of, and the Arts Council kind of came on board and funded it. And we did the show in a little place called Andrews Lane in Dublin. And it was very well received and well reviewed. And I think people kind of felt, uh, you know, I, I was a voice to be welcomed. So that was very encouraging and it kind of set me on the road you know to writing yeah what what was you said it was well received what were some of the reactions to it i mean especially from female audience members well yeah i i mean i think it was quite revolutionary in its time not in form but in that people had never written those stark human stories of uh what it was like to work on the streets in dublin as a prostitute in the here and now. So it really removed that otherness and it kind of brought it right into your living room. And I very much wrote about the women as sisters, mothers, daughters, lovers. It wasn't voyeuristic. It wasn't about the sex or the violence. It was about the psychological effect it had on them. Like one of the characters, for example, Jer, you know, she was a woman who had two kids herself, had always worked as a prostitute, had a very violent partner, had got rid of him years ago. And she was at a point where she was trying to get some work in a local crash and she was really reveling in it and she had the support of the nun, you know the the women the nuns who ran Ruhama and they were trying to get her some training and she was really growing in 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 her sense of herself and self esteem but then of course she comes up against the reality that in order to continue her work experience in this small little crash in her local community, she has to get a guard of clearance. And she'd been arrested for soliciting at a few points in her life. And she did not want the people she worked with to know about her past. So she just kind of walks out the door and never comes back. So they didn't know that she was a sex worker? No, no, not at all, you know. So it's about the shame that surrounds it and and, and how, you know, that that, that shame can kind of walk in on top of you when you least expect it, you know. And she was trying to reinvent herself and create a life away and apart from and outside it. But it's really hard to see a woman shut the door on her own future you know, so so they they were the kind of way I told those stories, you know, so that again people connected with the women, really felt for their stories, went on, on the story with them, you know, and hoped for them, and, and then saw at every turn, you know, society is so hypocritical in its. Um, you know, response to sex and sexuality, particularly Irish society, and so well, it's a bit know, Catholic, isn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, that's our culture. That's our history. You know, when we got our independence from the British in 1916, you know, that was a revolutionary movement that encompassed a lot of forces. You know, uh, socialism was a huge part of it. The the suffragette movement was a huge part of it. Uh, Nationalism was a huge part of it. But like anything, they all came together to kind of throw out the evil forces of Britain. And then looked at each other and realized, shit, we can't work together. You know, I'm a capitalist, you're a socialist. And and, and what happened was the church 
and the kind of middle ground commercial forces uh, positioned themselves and took over. So the, 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 the Catholic Church just completely recreated its own narrative. It had never supported Irish revolutionaries at any beckoned step of the way but then it kind of stepped in there for God and for Ireland and kind of really helped to to mould this identity of Irishness being wrapped up with Catholicism and then of course very powerful forces uh, kind of sat hand in hand with those early day politicians and wrote religion into our constitution and into our laws so there was no separation of church and state so it permeated all of society, all of public life, all of politics, all of the legal system. And it really held us in, our, in its grip for the last hundred years. And um, it's kind it, of what's really happening un- here too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's faltering now, but it's, it's like that you chip at a wall, you chip, 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 and suddenly it falls, you know, yeah. when you think it never will. They all do after a while, even by simple erosion. Yeah, what did Frederick Douglass say? Agitate. 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 Absolutely. Well, agitation takes time, it takes money, it takes heart. Um, I've worked with many activists here in the States, and after a while they just get this incredibly tired look, this, this air of, not defeat, but an air of, We've been walking this road for so very, very long, and we've got so little to show for it, but we've got that little bit. Yeah, the walls do come down, George. They do, you know, and I feel really privileged to to be here and now and and watch it happen, you know, Um, and it's, you know, I'm not anti-religion you know but I really am anti-control and anti-brainwashing and anti-shame and anti you know exploitation and I think that's what happened here and that's what happens if you give any one institution too much power it corrupts full stop it corrupts the entire society yeah yeah Yeah, it's like a disease No, no matter who it is even if they're you know trying to do good but you've got so many people have so many different pasts and viewpoints and, and, and life experiences that one size does never fit all. That's the truth. That's it. One, and life isn't black and white. And every situation is deeply complex. And like that, again, is the joy of theatre. You know, we spoke, you know, you, you know, you just present a human being in joy, in turmoil, at a, at a moment of decision. And, and you just, you know, ripple out from there all the people that are around that one decision that one person you know you've got great drama you've got great comedy you've got great conflict and you can throw in any amount of questions and those questions push and pull at the drama and the characters and the audience can get active with you you know I think it's really important to have theatre very active my ambition is always no snoozers do you know (laughs) that's mine too not it's it's not a runner. You don't fall asleep in my auditorium. No. So see, so my plays are actually quite sparse in there. Yeah, I, I wanted I wanted to talk to you about that. Um, I saw a quote from you. I got a lot of quotes from you actually. Um, okay. Economy of lines. You can tell a lot in two lines. All right. I think so. Yeah. Yeah, and so is this your goal at this particular point to be? 
as economical, as sparse as possible. Um, and you also mentioned that sometimes actors don't trust this kind of economy in lines. Yeah, I, I think it's something I found, George, rather than something I tried to create, you know. I mean, I started writing plays in 1999 and I had my own theatre company. So I was really privileged because I always had people around me that would put them on. So I learned this craft through audiences, through actors, through directors, you know, through doing it, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that's kind of a brilliant way to find your way as an artist. And I really think I had written a number of plays uh, in the first five or six years. And then I sat down and I wrote a little play called Hue and Cry. And it's a short play. It's only about 40 minutes long. It went to New York actually in 2009 and won a couple, did that win a couple of awards? No, it, it got a critic's pick in the New York Times. Nice. Uh, and, it, you know, so it was a bit of a buzz for me and it got me my first agent in, in, in America and everything. But it was a play about two men who meet the night before a funeral. And um, that, that it's, uh, it's a play about grief and it's a play again about how we respond to grief and how it shapes us. And the two boys were cousins and one of them is Damien and uh, Damien's a drug addict. His life has spun out of control. He's just about surviving, you know, and he's come back to see what he can get out of this funeral, what he can rob, basically. OK, and it's his dad. He had a very fractured relationship with his dad. And his cousin, Kevin, who's a gay choreographer, uh, is kind of sent into the sitting room to get him the hell out. So it's a little bit like a boxing match. You know, the two of them are across purposes and they know what's happening, but they, they don't name it. You know, they're yeah. having these, this kind of, oh, how are you, Kev? How's it going? So what are you doing with yourself? You know, that kind of very, uh, you know, public space, a lot of tension and pressure, and they're dancing around each other, and Kevin's goal is to get Damien the hell out of there. But at some point, they connect. And I think it was when I was writing that play, those voices, those two men, I just knew them so well. Uh, and that way that men talk through sport, talk through things, you know, rather than ever really going out there. <laughs> I'm familiar with it, yes. Yeah, you're familiar with it. But I, I just remember there's a, the, the character Damien has a son and he's talking about his son, Chris, and uh, and the other guy's going, oh, that's great. You've got a son. You must be very proud. And what's he doing? Da, da, da. And, uh, and he goes, how old is he? And Damien goes, uh, 10, 12-ish, you know? And oh. everybody laughs. But just that response tells you, this guy has no relationship with his son. He doesn't even know how old he is, right. you know? Yeah. And I think I kind of found that in writing that play. And I just felt very comfortable in it. And I knew I had hit on something, do you know? And that that's the way it is as a playwright. Like, your voice develops. And it's not always the way, because since then I have written other plays that have been written in, you know, I wrote a play called Wild Sky for, for the 1916, you know, kind of national commemoration program. Yeah. And I wanted to look at radicalization. And I ended up writing a play about two individuals from 1916, and there were two crossing monologues. And that form allowed me to be very lyrical in the language, you know, in a way that I, I couldn't in hue and cry. So I think it's about 
as a playwright, becoming aware of what language can do for you, that it works on so many levels, you know? Yes. And it's really, it's really joyous when you get in there and you kind of instinctively know that. And then it becomes a little, I describe it as kind of like poetry, that every word earns its place and it pushes it on. And then I realised, I was watching Glengarry Glen Ross recently in a mm. production in Dublin and I was going... Talk about sparse. Yeah. And then, of course, I had done that in college, you know, and, I, and, and I, I knew I was able to recite some of the lines of the actors. And if you had asked me, was David Mamel an influence, I probably would have said no until I sat in front of Gary Ross and went, wow. <laughs> so that's where it comes from. Yeah. But it's a mush of all those things because I've been going to the theatre since I was about eight years of age. Like my mother loved the theatre, found a partner in crime and we went to everything, you know. And there was a fabulous little theatre in Dublin called The Focus. And they used to do a lot of contemporary American plays, you know, like Tracy Letts and, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I, like I think they, before they, they would have been kind of hitting Sarah Rule and that before they closed. So I, I had the privilege of seeing a lot of those brilliant plays and then a lot of English plays and, of course, the entire Irish tradition, you know. So, so that's where I learned it, you know. Yeah, I had a, a similar thing, but I, I ended up going by myself. Um None of my friends, like I said, I've told you earlier, I grew up in New York City and none of my friends were theater people. We were, you know, lower middle class and you didn't do theater. You probably went to the movies, but theater was something that, you know, what rich people did, you know, snooty people did. But I went because I loved theater and now I get tickets for half price. And yeah, 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 yeah. this is back in the 70s and uh, 1970s, by the way. Um but it was a wonderful experience to see all these different things happening right in front of me with real people. Yeah, that's the magic of it. And I have to say, we're lucky in Ireland and that theatre is quite heavily subsidised. I mean, I swallow my tonsils every time I go to New York and pay 90 or $140. Oh my gosh, tick. that's why I don't go anymore. It's ridiculous. It's it's really tragic as well because you must lose so much, you know. Like in the Abbey, which is our national theatre, which would be one of the more expensive theatres, they always have thirteen euro tickets for you know kind of the front two rows, you know, which sell out in minutes. But all the kids yeah. buy them, you know, and then they do free previews and you know, uh, like just you know the dearest ticket will be forty five. You right. know, so so it's very so it's much more an every man pursuit. It, there's a class thing around it here, but I don't think as um, as kind of screamingly obvious as it is in America or the UK. We do have decent subsidy, right? That's... But think of all the voices you lose then as well, because why would people start writing for theatre if they don't go to it? It's tragic. Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, theatre here is expensive. I, I, the town I'm in right now has a wonderful theater community. We've got two major regionals. We've got a spattering of smaller groups, all of whom that I've worked with over the years. And But for some of the more produced stuff, some of it I can't afford. Yeah, you know, that's I, a shame, isn't it? It is, and there are wonderful plays out there that I would love to see, but, you know, it's it's a little bit out of, you know, out of my pay grade. 
Yeah, that that's and and like likewise, you know, um, you you know, because you'd be saying like, what's the latest Susan Laurie Parks, what's the latest Abby Morgan, what's the latest Nick Payne, or what you know, yeah, and, yeah. and you read them, but but seeing them, it's you know, they're, they're written to be seen, you know. Different. So yes. I, I read them if if I just can't catch the production, but it never feels the same, and I know I'm missing something because that's theatre is dynamic, it's magic, it's in the moment, it's kind of that elusive, ephemeral mm. kind. And, and we're all a part of it. It doesn't happen without the audience. Yeah, yeah. You were talking, um, you mentioned earlier about Tall Tales Theatre Company, which I want to get to. But yeah. I want to lead into that. After your after Bay Karna, all of a sudden you've got this play. You actually wrote a play that was well-received. Yeah. All right? Which opens yeah. up a whole new you know, aspect of theater. You've already been an actor and you've gone to school for this. So you know what's going on. Um, but to actually try your second play and then keep going, that must have, that must have changed your entire life view. Right? Yeah, yeah, it did, it did, and and the thing I think again, a really good friend of mine, Maureen Collender, was, was directing for Tall Tales, and we had just started off together, put a couple of hundred quid in a bank, put on our first production, like we did Peter Schaefer, we did Edward Albee, we did Samuel Beckett, we were doing a lot of these great playwrights, and then I was going to go, they're all men, <laughs> you know, right. what is that? And then I began to kind of hunt around and try and find some female playwrights, and and then wrote Bay Karna myself you know and then Maureen was going you know this is great you've got to write another one and there was a lovely woman called Bree Jukes who had a little theatre in Tala called The Civic and she commissioned me straight away to write another play so um it, it, I didn't I never thought about it as being my second play it's not like Bay Karna was you know won an Edinburgh Fringe first right, or right. you know went straight to the national or anything you know it had had it had had a really successful run, and I had been hugely encouraged. But I suppose I never stopped to think. I, I just went straight and wrote Passage, and then I went straight and I wrote Not and She, and then I, uh, and I started writing children's plays. I'm pretty um, prolific, and I love theatre. So if that's what I was going to do, then that was what I was going to do all the time. And I think I always knew I was a good storyteller. I am a good storyteller. I was always good, even as a kid. Like I'd have, I'd have. My friends, you know, breaking their hearts, laughing. Do you know what I mean? I, I, yeah. I, and I was always a known exaggerator and they couldn't believe a word that came out of my mouth because I wouldn't let anything interrupt a good story. And, you know, <laughs> I enjoyed all of that. And, and I think kind of the actress in me really enjoyed all of that. But then I kind of realised I can tell a story in a way that would keep people interested because the actor in me knows when they're dozing off or they're, they're you know, I can see it in their eyes that they're heading to a different place. So I knew I could roll a story, you know? Yeah. And I think that once I became confident in that, I never necessarily thought about theatrical form. I would just think about my audience or watch my audience and where they were and where I was losing them and how I could pull them back. And that's kind of how I learned how to do it. And I'm not everyone's bag. I write absolutely in the literary vein. You know, if people walking around talking to each other, you know, I'm not sitting there blowing up balloons or whatever. Mm -hmm. You know, it's very much in that kind of craft, literary. Um, but even within that, I suppose I try and stretch and muscle and change the form. The form fits the story. Whatever I want to tell, how I tell it comes out of that. Yeah. So I think for me, it was just 
I had people around me who believed in me. It was a bit of a golden age in Ireland, even though we didn't realise it at the time, in that the independent sector was on fire. There were a lot of new people presenting, setting up their own companies, writing and producing plays in very different ways and being funded to do it. So it was it, it was fast and it was furious and it was dynamic and it was happening. And you didn't think about it too much, do you know? Yep. You were just do. doing it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Quick question, and then we'll sign off because I know you have to go. Uh, yeah. It's it's a purely technical thing, one playwright to the next. Do you know the ending before you start writing, or do you let it happen? Sometimes I absolutely know the ending, and then sometimes I have to let it happen. I think I always know, every time I go out of play, I either I, I will have a scene in my head, and that scene, be it an image, be it a speech, be it a word, be it a feeling, you know, I know exactly what it is. And then the whole play either revolves around that or leads up to that or springs out from it, yeah. you know? Uh, like I think I know the end of the play that I just started to write four days ago, but I'm strangulating myself trying to figure out how to get there. Yeah, you're at a retreat right now trying to work on it, aren't you? I am, exactly. Uh, how's that working out for you? It's great. It's a beautiful place called the Tyrone Guthrie Centre in Ireland. In fact, a lot of American writers come over here. They have a couple of, um, you know, kind of, uh, you know, relationships with, with various places like the, the Guthrie Centre in Minneapolis and with universities and that. It's a beautiful, big old house in the country. And, you know, you just you just write all day and get fed beautiful food and swim in the lake and sit in the woods. It's, Playwrights it's, heaven. It is. Playwrights and a lot of visual artists and a lot of musicians and that. So it's great. It's real cross-genre. And I often meet people here and then work with them on different projects. Nice. That sounds wonderful. I'm going to have to apply at some point. You'll have cool. to. Oh, dear to Kinahan, it has been a lovely experience chatting with you. And you um, I wish you all the best with your new play. Thank you so much for being here. Um, before we cut out, how can my uh, audience uh, find out more about you? Where, where, where can we go look you up and read your stuff? Yeah, I, I, I'm afraid I haven't got a website, which is very bold of me, but I am up on Facebook and I have a page up on Facebook and I try and update that with, with various plays that are happening in Ireland and around the world just so, so people know where to go. Excellent. All right, so I'll look for you there. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye. Hey kids, thanks for listening to Onstage Offstage. Onstage Offstage is produced monthly and all of our shows can be found at onstageoffstage.org and also on iTunes. If you enjoy what we do, please recommend us to your friends. Don't forget to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at OnOffstage. And if you are a theater artist with an upcoming project of interest or work in a part of theater we haven't covered yet or know of someone in the theater world, Who'd make some great chat? Please send us a note at info at onstageoffstage.org. Onstage Offstage believes in and advocates for a world where all people are free to live their lives as they wish, in peace and without fear. We believe in universal respect, diversity, and equality in all areas of life for all people, no matter what their nationality, race, religion, age, sexual status, or gender. Onstage Offstage will never promote or endorse those who seek to diminish others because of who they are. I'm George Sapio. Thank you once again, and happy theatering to all of you. Mm -hmm.